yeah, let's talk about making Horlicks or something. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Stuart Tiffany. Hello, nice to be here for the first time. Yeah, it's great to have you here, Stuart. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, I think, as listeners can probably guess, the focus is going to be on primary history this evening. But first, Chris, what's you reading for? What are you reading for? This week, I've been reading a book by Lynn Stone called Language for Life. It's all about uh, linguistics and grammar, but aimed at a primary teaching audience. I love it. It's really accessible. It's a really lovely guide to this stuff. But alongside it, it also has kind of like lesson plans. So a guide through how to teach this stuff to students. And best of all, because it's Lynn Stone, there's a certain verve and bravado and wit about the writing, uh, which I absolutely love. So, yeah, well worth checking that one out, uh, along with the other books that she's written. I think she's written one on reading and one on spelling as well. But this one, I think it was the first one that she wrote, Language for Life, is well worth checking out. What about you, Stuart? What are you reading for? At the moment, I've got two on the go. I am reading, rereading parts of Emma Turner's Simplicitous book um, because I'm very much enjoying reflecting on history, pedagogy, plus making it work in a primary school as they are different. And then in a history sense, I have got a glorious book, which is here. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, what is History Now? by Helen Carr and Susanna Lipscomb loving them both the chapters so far because I've also read the precursor to that book which you may not have heard of called What is History by Helen's grandfather E.H. Carr uh, where he wrote in 1961 so it's a really interesting comparison of how things have changed. Kieran uh, what are you reading for? So I mean I mean that's really interesting and to think that you've got this uh, this this narrative being told over time yes that's fantastic. I've gone for a paper that Sam Sims recommended on Twitter during the summer, I think it was the, towards the end of August, it's um, covert and overt retrieval practice in the classroom. And I think, you know, it feels as if retrieval was one of the big things that kicked off the evidence-informed movement in the UK, you know, maybe about a decade, decade and a half ago. And I'm always interested when there appears to be potentially something new to be form part of that discussion. So yeah, I think well worth checking out. Can't remember if it was on a, a paywall or not, but um, yeah, it, it, was, it was a very interesting read. So this week, the focus is going to be primary history. And, you know, Stuart, you're someone who we've been looking to have on the podcast for a very long time. We really respect your work and the contribution you make to the education community in general. And so I'm going to adopt the um the position of your, I don't know, what was the polite way to describe the bumbling fool who just sort of asks questions, you know, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very interested in history, I read about history, but in terms of history, pedagogy, and um, having uh, almost like a philosophical approach to it, um, it's not quite my most developed uh, subject. 
Um, and so I think it makes sense, and Stuart UK, if I throw this your way, first question is, what is primary history? Uh, yes, so um, the, one, of, one of the things that I found over the last few years since I've started working uh, less as just a subject lead and classroom lead and working across the country supporting schools with things like curriculum design and staff CPD is that primary history is a glorious mess. And I deliberately went for a provocative start because it was fun and it made me smile. Um, the thing about history is there is no singularity. Very rarely will you get agreement on something being certain or factually accurate. And when we take that right back to the start of what we do in primary school is this is our this is our introduction to children of going right. You're going to be learning about abstract worlds that actually happened. You're going to be going back in time far beyond what we can comprehend. And our job is to make sense of it. So it's that earliest steps into that journey. I've, I, I pulled up a couple of things just while I was thinking about it. Um, I, I mean, the lovely Neil Armand might enjoy it if we start with a bit of Greek etymology, because it's, it genuinely is quite a useful place to start. Um, so I was, lo I was looking this up, histor, as in learned and wise man. So it's that academia side of it. So instead of just learning a set of facts and therefore having the answer, we actually need to do something with them. We need to con you know, carefully construct understanding. And then you get historia, which is finding out narrative. Narratives are utterly vital when we think about history in whatever level. If you don't have a narrative, then you're going to get isolated episodes, which means we won't make those all important questions. I mentioned before the uh, book, What is History by um, E.H. Carr. I'm just going to quote. I'm just going to quote him because I love it. It's a wonder. It's a wonderful explanation. This is a, his most academic sense. What is history? It is a continuous process of interaction between the historian and his facts, an unending dialogue between the present and the past. So it's that that convers. It's almost like a conversation where we look back at what happened and try and make sense of it. Our jobs as primary teachers is the narrator of that story, and I've kind of come to use that metaphor quite readily because primary teachers tend to know far more about English teaching because that's what lots of IT courses focus on and rightly so but if we use that idea of a narrator it helps them understand the role is to kind of guide through this assortment of things that are going to be put across. I love that sense when you said there about it's history is something that we do and there's this sense of um, interpret interpretation and narrative. I was listening to um, a podcast a while back, a while back when they were talking, which was about the pulling down of the statue in Bristol of uh, Colston. And I remember a lot of the it was it was a historian on the podcast who was complaining, rightly so, about the number of commentators who were saying things like, oh, you're changing history or you're trying to reinterpret history. And their point was, no, that is history. The reinterpretation and the better and deeper understanding of events that have come before is history. And the idea of saying that, no, no, we've got it fixed and we know what it is and it's set and we don't need to reinterpret it and understand it more deeply from our own times is is a misinterpretation that is fundamentally ahistorical. So I loved when you were talking there about the idea of there being a narrative, but also a sense of interpretation, because that's what I've come to think about when it when it comes to, to history as well. I guess kind of linked to that, I mean, I don't know if this speaks to your expertise or experience either, 
Do you think there are any kind of differences or significant differences between or obvious differences between primary history specifically and secondary history? Or are you, I know you're like a primary expert, but is there anything off the top of your head that you think, well, I've looked a little bit at the key stage three curriculum and this is surprisingly similar or surprisingly different? That's um, that's a really interesting question and something that I've had a couple of uh, requests to go and speak to secondary teachers about uh, of late of what is primary history. There are fundamental differences and this is, it's a personal not a gripe, not a concern, but it's that kind of inkling of currently, um, if people tried to read the research reviews, um, the research review history had a lot of references in there. I think it's, I'm pretty confident we're talking three digits. Um, five of them were primary specific. Huh. The current model is very much influenced by secondary practice. And secondary teachers, because they are specialists, have a lot that they can inform and support primary teachers with. And hands up i have i have learned lots from uh secondary teachers that i've encountered but and uh here's the uh the defense of the primariness as emma turner likes to call it the joy of the primary curriculum is it is interconnected the joy of the primary curriculum is we can sit there and go we can add breadth to their knowledge in ways that secondary schools can't because we're not in a departmental structure so I think of some of my favourite lessons uh, to support children uh, when, I've been, when I've been teaching and my favourite moments are when they make an interdisciplinary link. For example, when I was teaching the Romans to year three and um, we made mosaics in arts and to make it a purposeful historical link, all I did was ask them, now that you've made your mosaics, how has that helped you understand the Romans? And these children at the age of seven they could understand and quite eloquently explain why they would only be found in the wealthiest homes. They were making connections that I'd, I hadn't led them down about the role of the empire in terms of trade, because they were thinking about where would you get the dyes for the colours. So all of those things is where we can get things, things for, uh, where we can get that breadth, as Christine Council would call it, that hinterland knowledge. Um, I'm not going to start spouting about reading because uh, Chris will get very overexcited and start diving in. But actually, when we read high quality historical fiction, that adds that sense of time and place. There's um, real, really wonderful uh, historical thinkers, uh, Ian Dawson, who is magnificent. If you want to learn about history, Ian Dawson is a go to. And he uh, talks about that development of the sense of time, place and period. And then uh, Mike Hill wrote a brilliant blog uh, a while ago on world building. And he compares creating those abstract historical worlds with the work of uh, Tolkien. Because the function of the early lessons in history is to build that world, to develop that sense of period in the same way as the early chapters of a book help build that world in which the narrative takes place. Because if we don't do that, the narrative doesn't make sense because the world's so fundamentally different. The one thing that I do feel we run the risk of is if we don't really consider what history lesson is, then we go back to that malaise of a topic-led approach, which is where it can go wrong. When it's done well, it's a beautiful thing. But what I've tried to, what I've tried to do is distinguish between a history lesson and a lesson that adds historical knowledge, because they, that is a fine line. And I'm very open to uh, contestation on, on this because it's not a perfect model by any stretch of the imagination. 
to me in primary schools we sometimes mix things unintentionally but a history lesson to me is a lesson that provides not only factual knowledge not only helps them develop that historian's toolkit but the way in which that knowledge is interpreted is in a historical way if we don't interpret in a historical way is it actually a history lesson that's where i would start to question that can i ask a follow-up question on that because that just reminds me of something that's come up in conversations a Please few do. times there's been a bit of a um a hoo-ha i've seen on twitter a few times where someone has taken a uh, an, an aspect of history and then said well something that we did following our learning and they've not said whether it was in a history lesson or not or elsewhere but they've said we then talked about um the potentially like the ethics of something so for example they might have talked about the um if you think about the benin bronzes and they've then said we then looked into that and talked and, and began to discuss these um partly within the historical context but bearing that in mind, we started to think about the, the ethics behind it. And often people will immediately jump in and say, but that's not history. You can't do that. And there's part of me that thinks, well, it's why not? Why? Well, even if it is, why can't we make that link? If we're clear with students and say, actually, we're now talking more about ethics, which we would consider as part of philosophy. And then we're kind of branching away from history now. I don't think that's a bad thing. I actually think that's quite a, an interesting way to go. But or do you see or do you, do you disagree with that? Do you think there's perhaps a danger and that once you've learned about something in history, talking about the ethics around it or some other aspect of the curriculum might confuse kids? That is a nightmare of a question in the best possible way. I, I, it is a nightmare of a question because there are so many kind of thought processes that play a role in terms of it's, you know, as with pretty much everything, the devil's in the detail and. I have a vague recollection of um, a conversation I saw between some university academics. Um, I think it was Arthur Chapman, um, another brilliant uh, master of all things teaching history. And they were looking at the fact that in terms of the way we teach history in Britain, we don't tend to include the ethics within that. But I've got a, a real flickering in my head of, I think some countries do. Uh, the, Canada jumps out that in, when they teach history in Canada, the two are interwoven. In terms of for primary schools, it must be done very, very carefully, because if we're not careful, we run the risk of putting our 21st century value judgments onto an ancient world where that doesn't that doesn't quite fit. The way in which we label things today is different to how it was perceived in the past. The, the example, my go to example I often use is um, the Athenian democracy. And often it's uh, introduced who could vote, male citizens could vote, women couldn't vote. Well, that's not fair. And I've seen children get really angry about that because their only knowledge of the world is that women can vote and there is voting equality, there's equal enfranchisement. So therefore, this isn't fair. If that's not given suitable historical context, that can really get out of hand. What I mean when I say that is if we think about when women were given the vote in this country or granted the votes a better phrase um it's equal voting came in less than a century ago so in the you know huge narrative arc that's quite recent and then if we look back and compare the athenian democracy with spartan oligarchy with the monarchies of various ilks that they'll study throughout key stage two 
if we just settle that it's not fair, I'd suggest we've possibly missed part of the point in that, no, it wasn't fair. But when you compare it to everything else, it was a huge step in the right direction. So therefore it was fairer. And that's where I think we just need to be mindful. Sometimes we are going to put our value judgments on parts of history because they were abhorrent and can never happen again. This is why in the whole of the history curriculum, the only thing specified that must be taught is the Holocaust in key stage three. And that can never, ever happen again. So when people kind of say, do we need to give not a balanced account, but not a one-sided perspective on things like the slave trade? No, no, absolutely. It was abhorrent. It was morally reprehensible. It was absolutely grotesque. So examples like that, but it must be very carefully considered. What, if we just go back a step to the nature of the primary curriculum, in terms of an ethical sense, that's a perfect avenue to go down in PSHE and English lessons, because you don't need to have history. The historical knowledge becomes a vehicle for a different manner of thinking. That to me is more of a, a safe route to explore it, but it doesn't take away you know, the relevance because the Benin bronze is being returned I don't think many people would object to. Thanks. That's just like fascinating answer. And uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's so much um, complexity in there. And I, I liked what you said there about the idea of separating it out and saying, look, we can use this knowledge, but it's probably quite sensible for us to kind of pen that in by saying, and we're now doing this within kind of PSHE so that pupils actually recognize the different kinds of thinking that are involved in different kinds of lessons so yeah really nuanced stuff thank you yeah i think i think it's awesome i mean adam smith talks about um protecting re because re can very quickly become citizenship and pshe and lots of other things and the the discipline of, of religious studies or religious education gets missed one question that did come to mind i think the phrase was um if you're not giving it a historical analysis then it's not history if someone's listening, maybe started their career, and they're wondering, well, what does that mean for me and my behaviours as a teacher? What, what would you say to them? First of all, I'd say have a go, because having a go is far better than not. The way in which I kind of put that across, it sounds quite partisan. A history lesson, having that sense of historical interpretation, that to me is kind of a benchmark of, yeah, that's very much more likely to be a history lesson. Are there going to be examples where that wouldn't be the case? Probably. But it's a nightmare to try and think of every eventuality. In terms of an early career teacher, let's say, or a teacher who doesn't have a background in history, because theoretically you could be leading history in a primary school and has not learned it since the end of year nine, which is the nature of primary education. The difficulty with history, as I said before, is it's not greed. Therefore, what we need to do is be very deliberate and specific about what we are going to teach the children. So before we start, let's have a really clear impression of what we want to accomplish. Because if you've got that, it becomes a much easier prospect. And I know lots of people look at the curriculum for history and think it's really open-ended. And that's because it is. When it was released in 2013, um, there's a video on YouTube from Alf Wilkinson, who was the Historical Association CPD manager at that stage, saying that's exactly what it is and deliberately so, because the joy of it, if you know what you're doing, is it allows you to craft a meaningful and purposeful, purposeful curriculum. However, if history is not your background, then that becomes very problematic. So therefore, for primary schools, that's much more likely to be uh, the case. So what I would do is I'd start with the actual objectives themselves because they are the ones we are required to teach. 
And then once you've looked at that, look really carefully and go, so what do my children need to know? I remember when I started teaching in 2000, when I was training in the early kind of mid 2000s, it was very much lots of activities. It was very much a different pedagogy. We're not going down the VAC rabbit hole again, because that's been obviously debunked. But what we need to do is look and go, so what do I need to teach? Because if you define what you need to teach, that becomes easier to go and find it and to be able to do it in an easy way. And because history is so massive, it's the story of humanity. It's literally everything. You can't teach everything. It is impossible to teach everything. People spend their whole careers and lives learning about niche aspects of it. So as primary teachers, what we need to do is we need to look and go, this is what I must cover. So that's what I'm going to do. And then when you come back to it, if you're still in the same year group, then you can enhance. But start with being really deliberate. Don't leave it last minute and then post on social media. Does anybody have any lovely activities for this? Because a lovely activity means they might have a nice time and you might get lucky they'll learn something. But unless you plan that linear sequence, the narrative arc of history is unlikely to come across. I mean, one of the good things that does exist in the primary curriculum related history is a nice set of um, concepts that are directly related to like the, di the disciplinary knowledge of history. So, you know, cause and consequence. I've got a list of them here, like continuity and change, similarity, etc. I think, generally speaking, if you're supporting pupils while teaching them about it's interesting historical stuff, you are supporting them to understand these concepts better. You're probably doing okay. If you're like at the start of your career and you're thinking, well, am I actually teaching history? If they are grasping these concepts to a better level through some different examples that you're teaching across your curriculum, you're probably not going too far wrong, I'd say. I'd possibly go a step further and say you sound like you're doing a pretty good job. In terms of those uh, historical concepts, they can't be taught separately. They cannot be an ad hoc add-on. So if you know you're going to be focused on changes, then right at the start, make sure the children know that because then they'll start to apply that knowledge across and go, now we've learned about this and that. How did it change? When did it change? What changed? And for younger children, especially have those as prompts every time I have no issue. And I mean, I'm going to put this out there. I frequently reuse the same slide, mainly, mainly to build up fluency to go. This is how we're going to draw our answers. We're looking at what changed, how it changed. Um, just a word of warning on one of them. because This is a really common mistake that's been picked up on uh, by uh, Tim Jenner at Ofsted. Significance. In primary schools, we are not teaching full historical significance. It is incredibly complex. It is incredibly nuanced. And you have to have a huge wealth of contextual knowledge. So in, even though the word significance is mentioned in three out of the four objectives for Key Stage 1 history, don't worry if you look up historical significance. Start in a really simple way of what significant means. So if something is significant, if it's worthy of remembrance, if it's worthy of remembrance, it doesn't mean famous. That's really common misconception. Don't call them famous people because think of Mary Anning. Mary Anning has only just got a statue thanks to the campaign of a little girl. Mary Anning's significance has only recently been you know, revealed in the context. So just think about it in those ways. And I liked when you were bringing up about the... Uh, it's not re I totally agree. It's not erasing history. We're telling different stories. 
that's all we're doing. We're broadening horizons by telling different stories. If we don't tell those stories, the children may miss out on a really incredible role model. Just because they're not one of the big hitters doesn't mean that we can't do that. And we also shouldn't underappreciate the intelligence of younger children. So if you're looking at one of the big hitters like Columbus, let's go for, instead of asking why should we remember Christopher Columbus, change one word and the meaning is fundamentally different. How should we remember Christopher Columbus? Because in a simple level, we can introduce the fact that people are complex. The fact that yes, from this perspective, they are significant. They did amazing things. However, it's not all good. And it's absolutely fine. To, it's absolutely fine and valid to do that. I loved what you said there about using the same slide. I couldn't help but hark back to um, a previous episode uh, with uh, Sarah Cottingham. She's interested in Alcibel. And so currently she's thinking about things in terms of um, organization of knowledge and in particular the idea of anchoring concepts or subsumers and this idea of this thing helps us to understand this higher more abstract more generalized idea helps us to understand the bits that come that are examples of that um, and so when you were talking about start off with change start off with the idea of change foreground the idea that we are going to be learning about this um, higher order concept of change how things change why things change what are the consequences of that and um, start off with that and as as a like anchoring concept and then build what's coming from that i thought that was a really uh, interesting thing you said there and tied in quite nicely with um the way that she thinks or is currently thinking about alcibel's work yeah i think it's it's a really interesting one because there are lots of different ways to do this and I think one of the things I've realized over the last you know, few years as you become more of an experienced teacher is you, you look and go, this works. And I have to confess, I wouldn't have thought of it in the same way as you've just explained it, but actually, yes, it does make sense. The way I like to think about it is, if you know what you're going to be using as a vehicle for the answer, why wouldn't you front load it? As opposed to, right, now you've learned this, let's look at this massive swathe of information and look at the changes. Whereas what I tend to do and have done for the past few years at least is you build that understanding as you go. So it's interwoven with that factual knowledge because if you do that, it's you know it's, it's less on the cognitive load. You can do it in small steps and it becomes easier to retrieve and you know find and plot that pathway along. Yeah, and if, when, if we talk about attention being the big difference maker in the classroom, if you're like priming the kids where your attention is going to go, I think you're definitely setting them up for success. You know, it makes sense. A lot of sense. I, re I really hope that um, someone's listening and you have been the first person to tell them that VAC isn't a thing. <laughs> and they're like, they, they, they drop their coffee cup. They're like, what? <laughs> Call their sister on the phone. <laughs> it, 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 it genuinely makes me giggle because I, I honestly remember the lesson plans I was doing at university because that was the research that people that was being used. So the use of academic research, I certainly was making use of it whilst I was um, whilst I was training. I think it was uh, Black and Williams uh, formative assessment stuff. Absolute benchmarks still influences, you know, the way I work and the way I think today. It's just what we have to do is and it's part of being, um, you know, a historic, you know, that historian's craft is we need to interrogate the the joy of, you know, that one of the things about being a historian that I read was um, every historian expects their work to be superseded. And, you know, this is an unending conversation of let's just have another look at that. Does it still stack up? 
And, you know, it doesn't matter what discipline, whether it's educational research or cognitive science, it's, does that still stack up? Does it need refining? And that's, I think that's just the nature of, you know, good quality development. I don't know if we've already sort of ventured into this because we had quite a, a detailed chat there about um, what primary history was. How does history function at primary? It's one aspect of the wider curriculum. And this is why um, it's nice to get you know some really good primary voices out there with pod podcasts like this one, Emma's book that we've mentioned uh, a couple of times. It is one subject, but in quite a few primary schools, they operate that really traditional model of we do a half term of history led, we do a half term of geography led and repeat throughout the year. Some of my favorite schools that I've been to do not follow that structure because it can't be that rigid. And we just need to be a little bit braver sometimes. If a history unit of work is done in five weeks and it's an eight week half term, heaven forbid, then what we need to do is we just need to look and go, it's done. Can we, are we going to add some additional depth? Are we going to make some comparisons? Or are, for once, we going to let the arts lead the curriculum? Because I can think about children I've taught who, and I know it's really weird me talking about the arts being in charge for once, but it's it's that sense of, well, actually, for some children, that's what they love. And we're not doing them justice if it's only relegated to a, a cross-curricular link. So although it's one subject, I, it is a really important subject in so many regards because it is the story of humanity. Um, and I will repeat the story of humanity. Dinosaurs are not part of history. Less and less schools are putting it on their curriculum, but there is a battle that still needs to be won. What we need to do is we need to go, it helps explain the world we have today. So in terms of the way it functions, it, influ it can have huge influences in things like just assemblies, telling amazing stories of people in the, in the past, the role models that shape the world we live in today. And that sense of locality is wonderfully helpful because it helps children feel like they're walking in the footsteps of giants. Schools in Manchester really ought to be having the Pankhursts on their significant individual list. If they're missing out on things like that, that's such a shame. So even though we've got this, you know, kind of list of things, my current my bugbear, and I've had it for a while, is um, the Great Fire of London, and I usually get some grimaces when I mention this. Uh, the last HA survey we've had released in uh, 2019, 80 percent of primary schools were teaching the Great Fire of London. 80%. I don't know why 80% of, of children need to learn about a 17th century fire in London. It, that's a place they've never visited. It's so abstract, they can't really make those all important connections. So think, you know, think outside the box, because it has those implications. My favourite one is the first flight, because it has real implications on the world we live in today, globalisation, because we've got that transit over long distances. You could look at has flight been entirely positive? Because that allows you to bring in the ethical things like conflict. So it, it's one way, although it's one subject, it can be used to feed, you know, feed through the wider curriculum. And it acts as a really good vehicle for not only developing a really great knowledge base that has real world ramifications, but it also helps them to build that kind of critical eye, which other subjects do, but it is a fundamental part of the historical discipline. We don't just look at a piece of evidence and go, right, great, we're sorted. We interrogate the heck out of it. And because we interrogate the heck out of it, we can start to say, so when you read something online, do you look and go, oh, it said it there once, therefore I'm going to believe it? Because 
in the 21st century, we've got access to more information than we've ever had in the world ever. To children, that's the normality of the world. I remember when I was in year six, we were really lucky because in year six, we had the school PC. So to children, it's the normal world, but actually it's recent change and the need to see how knowledge from different subject areas, domain specific knowledge, if we think can run across. I'll make a, a, a devil's advocate defense of the Great Fire of London, <laughs> if I may. Just go back. Uh, and not necessarily why it should be there, but why I think it's so common. I think it's one of these events that um, obviously I think it's just a bit of inertia. It's just something that's been taught. So it will continue to be taught. There's resources, there are books, there are whatever they might be. Um, I think it's one of the key things about it, though, is that it has a really, really nice and obvious introduction to cause and consequence. Oh, you know, absolutely. A fire happened and stuff burned down. It's quite a, quite a simple introductory narrative. That's not necessarily a defense of it being in curricula everywhere, but I suspect that's probably where schools are coming from. It's like, yeah, I can. It, it's kind of quite easy to explain to kids. Totally agree. And, and I'm not saying don't teach it, but anything that you put on your curriculum, ask yourself, why that? What value is it adding? The other one that I uh, very much am a huge advocate for is early Islamic history and it's a non-European study. I've been really trying to shout from the rooftops, consider teaching this since it was included in the curriculum because it challenges a narrative. It challenges stereotypes. And in the same way as we mentioned the Benin bronzes before, exactly the same. Um, I did some work on the updated bite size guides. I was reading around the Benin bronzes. And at that time, the British didn't realize that there were people of such incredible skill and talent until they saw the bronzes. And when we think about the, uh, the Muslim world today, how many children in our schools will see themselves represented in that history? So there are two reasons I'd consider, consider carefully where, what we're teaching and why. Number one is, how does it reflect the school context for two important reasons? If it's a really diverse context, then let's emphasize that in a positive manner. But number two, if the school is in no way, shape or form diverse, that is an equally important reason as to why we should make those choices. And not all, you don't always get that chance. But if you've got four, four post-1066 studies, why not drop one of them and let's have a bit of breadth in a different way? Love that. I know that, you know, Neil Armand listening to this at some point will be like just openly applauding. He's a huge fan of um, early Islamic civilization as um, as a topic. And it, it feeds back into your point about kind of the connected primary curriculum as well, because if you think about the um, the scientific discoveries that were made, et cetera, et cetera. So there are there are so many interesting aspects and also in terms of representation there are some really um interesting characters within the um the early islamic civilization that that add that sense of representation unless i'm mistaken in fact just give me a moment because i've got a name here that i'm trying to recall uh zainab al-shada who was a particularly important islamic artist uh in the area of calligraphy can't say i'm remembering that i'm literally like referring to <laughs> curriculum documents bits and pieces here as well um the first uh known university existed in ba baghdad i mean originally uh, a mosque and a place of learning and again unless i'm mistaken um founded by a woman so there are in terms of arguably challenging stereotypes across the board I think, yeah, I, it's it's a gloriously uh, rich um, area of study. I love teaching it. 
and uh, yeah, I'm jealous of, of anyone who still it, gets to. It's uh, as, yeah, it's genuinely one of my favorites. I knew nothing about it whatsoever. Just so I can cover my own back, in no way, shape, or form would I ever tell you to stop teaching something if there was a good reason for that. Um, a, a friend of mine, Vanessa, who's a Meyer archaeologist, the Meyer are remarkable utterly fascinating and uh, all three of them are worthy of study in their own right but this is where we can go back to you know that flexibility it doesn't say that a history unit must cover six weeks so if you're teaching the rainforests and biomes in geography then why not put in a quick a quick introductory study to the people that occupied it why why not do that that's where we've got this real joy of the primary curriculum, we can look and make those decisions. My absolute favorite person um, for early Islamic civilization, the early Islamic uh, civilization is Ibn Battuta. Um, there was recently an episode on him uh, on the comedy podcast, You're Dead to Me, which is on BBC Sound. Um, Ibn Battuta went for a walk and his walk was 75,000 miles roughly. He was in the, uh, he's in the 14th century. And it's just a great story. Do we have to do that in a history unit? No, it's a brilliant story to tell an English unit, that breadth of understanding in your reading curriculum or even just an assembly. My ultimate shame, I taught the uh, a really, it kind of upsets me, but it's a hindsight thing. I taught the First World War in 2014, 15, 16, and so on, because it was marking the centenary. And the class I was teaching was really diverse at that point. There were lots of different uh, ethnicities represented from across Asia and uh, into the Indian subcontinent as well. And I went to a conference and uh, Andrew Wren did a session on the role of the Indian army in the First World War. Game changer. And that's what I feel that we need to be open to as primary teachers, even though we're so busy, is keep our eyes and ears open and go, that's a perspective that's valuable for my children because when I introduced them to the Indian army, the children where that was their heritage, oh boy, it mattered. The joy, the pride, it mattered. And the best thing, and I think this challenges uh, a certain viewpoint um, that's presented very much in the media is it did no harm to the children who were white British. They loved the stories and the, the evidence base that they were accumulating as well. It did no harm. It was just breadth and it helped to shape their understanding in a more accurate and let's be honest, a more factually valid way. Yeah. If, if anything, they get the richer experience than if they got the, you know, because I think about my own sort of education and Ireland has a very unique history. And so the history curriculum reflects that. And I've had to read a lot about other cultures and uh, historical historical periods as an adult like for instance golden age of islam i was 30 plus before i was told about it but since then i've been trying to read as much as possible and there's a podcast they're about three hours long fall of civilizations and, so, and some of the places that my that i've been made aware of like i'll stick it on before i go to sleep and put the timer on 30 minutes so that's what you know maybe six seven nights i'll listen to it and we'll go back a little bit but like they talk about all these ancient African kingdoms and me and my oldest were talking the other day and he had assumed that the Romans came after the Anglo-Saxons because of some of the technological advancements. And so no one had told him that, but he had assumed because they had this, this and this, that um, then, then surely technology must move upwards and forwards. And so we had a really good conversation. And I think it just talked back to what you guys are saying there about the, about how, you know, the story isn't as simple as, as, as it 
as it might seem. Yeah, so I think, yeah, you don't have a leg to stand on, Chris, because what Stuart's talking about is, you know, thinking really carefully about your decision. And, and if school would do that, well, then there, there can't be a wrong answer, I don't think. There might only be a wrong answer then, but that can be corrected. It would be better to try and go, that didn't work the way we wanted it to, as opposed to if you never make that, you know, if you never step out to try, then you know, you never know it might be the best thing you ever did. So, yeah, totally with you on that one. Um, that There is a common misconception of the history being kind of that direct linear sequence, and therefore it's always moving forward all of the time. And there's the huge misconceptions about everybody's almost, at, everyone's almost at that same stage of development because we present it as a direct linear sequence. And that's very much not the case. Uh, when one of the other reasons I like to teach early Islamic civilizations is because it's a really fascinating comparison with Britain at that time. Um, there is a written account from um, Ahmad Ibn Fadlan, apologies if I've butchered that name, um, who actually wrote an account of when he met a Viking. And it's that the rich culture clash that went on. It's a real, there's a real dichotomy from this one person. He um, he said they were the filthiest of all, all Allah's creatures. They didn't wash their hands when in a state of ritual impurity or even after coitus. I don't want to know how he knew that. But then he also goes on to say that they had perfect physiques. So it's that real richness of the accounts and the fact you've got these two totally contrasting groups at literally the same point in time. I, I think I read about that in, uh, oh, is it Thomas Williams, um, Viking Britain? He was, the, he was saying it's one of the few remaining accounts of how certain groups of Vikings would behave. Because um, I'm down a bit of an Anglo-Saxon flash medieval history hole at the moment. I'm maybe reading four or five different things about that period. And, and I think that's how the conversation with my son came up, was that we're talking about how certain parts of the world had developed in different ways, you know, and, and obviously you have wave of um, of Saxons and I think Utes, but there, there may be a bit of a question as to whether they actually came or not. Um, and yeah, so yeah, essentially with a seven-year-old having this really complex conversation about how, you know, exactly what you're saying, the world um, didn't develop in a, in a linear fashion. I think it's fascinating. Um, you know, it goes back to your, you know, you're talking about world building. And it was only whenever I realized that Tolkien was, See a professor of Anglo-Saxon history at um, one of the universities in England, and that's he, essentially where he, he had this big body of knowledge before he went anywhere near, um, you know, Middle Earth, so to speak. Yeah, I think that that's the thing. That was a real when I read Mike Hill's blog, which is freely accessible. Um, that was such a game changer because it's one of those blogs when you read it and go, "That's so obvious." And then uh, Mike's a secondary head of history. I think he works for the ARC uh, Academy Trust now. And then another one was when um, Hugh Richards, who's another secondary head of department, he um, he was trying to get his children to his high school children to um, understand how far in the past. So he did it by number of grandmas because that's a duration of time they can equate to. And it's those stepping stones that I think as teachers, when we look at that, what I really enjoy doing is making things work for me because I will look at it in a very specific way. And it's those kind of conversations that I really enjoy. I mean, I want to be in one of your lessons. This sounds <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. I'm going to try, how can I make this a six-hour interview? What Stuart's been saying has kind of made me start to reflect on bits and pieces of my um, uh, the early Islamic civilization study in my curriculum. I'm like, hmm, wonder if I can move this around or maybe that's better there or 
um yeah can i add that bit of you know, that interesting nugget of information so thank you i mean mathematics is definitely one area that um gets i don't know would it be fair to say western washed i don't know um what the proper term for it but it, it, this is if this was this um sort of 15th century clerical um invention when really you know in in the sort of what we would recognize as the far east it's been developing for quite a lot longer than that hasn't it yeah the um the number system that we have is the hindu arabic system and it's quite nice to point out to children of why it's called that as one of the um one of the branches of knowledge we should be teaching through primary history is economic history which sounds when i kind of mentioned it to teachers you do quite often see eye rolling because they think you're gonna have to look at huge graphs and statistics but it doesn't you can start that from really young age because why was i mean we'll use the great fire of london again because you know we've got to give a defense of it um if we're going to criticize it as well why was it such a, a huge issue because london was an economic hub the thames was a natural way for goods to be imported from uh, the continent beyond into britain and that's been true since the roman period the original roman capital was raised by the lovely boudicca then they rebuilt another one at londinium so it's that economic history that can run through and then the vikings if we present that singular you know that singular narrative of vicious raiders pillagers warriors conquerors we're missing quite a lot of important things the reason uh, Ahmad ibn Fadlan met the viking was because it was a trade route these were the Rus vikings who came from sweden so it was a different group and they travel down so you can look at it in terms of economics and that works all the way through to kind of 20th industrial revolution and 20th century uh you know kind of politics it's really it really is ma it really matters and it's really important that we don't just present blood guts and gore we give them those rich stories of you know the life of ordinary people yes we might not know as much but we need the children to understand that we don't have the same level of evidence we don't know as much but it doesn't mean they weren't there if we didn't have the uh you know the great unwashed as they would be uh unpleasantly called in the victorian period i'm sure then that hierarchical structure doesn't stay because you need the people at the bottom to support those at the top and it's those aspects that really we have to be kind of mindful of um but uh, yeah in a mathematical sense there's lots of maths that does play a fundamental role in terms of underpinning uh historical concepts there's lots of english and reading as well so when we talk about history's function we can't place that on a pedestal and not implement other skill sets and knowledge bases it's uh it is really helpful to think of it as you know as an amalgamation yeah i mean i think quite often some, the the context of the time dictated the need and the necessity to discover the mathematics i think i'm almost certain that in in egypt in the basin of the nile tax was based on a circle from a a piece of string from the middle of your patch of land and then you would get the circumference and um, you know don't quote yep. me on that but i think it was marcus de sotoy was my mm. source and so they're obviously they obviously developed this knowledge of how circles behave in the surface area and stuff we got there and so yes yeah, so i think you know the history is very much part and parcel of why we know some of the stuff we do know absolutely um my ex uh, it was the other one they had uh the ancient egyptians had banks but they were for agricultural produce because that was what they used as a form of currency I think it was called a deben d e b e n and that was what they did and they had they stored that and they had to have mathematical concepts in order to ensure they had enough because they'd work out if they'd had enough if they had enough food to last them until the next harvest and the rest would be exported to trade what they couldn't produce themselves 
So it's one of those risks that if we start with in history, if we start you know with the big hitters, we're on the Egyptians, so we'll stick with them. But if you know if you start immediately with pyramids, mummification, you've missed the all important underpinning. Those things don't happen by accident. They require bureaucracy. And although it's not the most glorious sounding thing, you don't get a civilization of any great consequence without those layers of bureaucracy. Nothing happened in Egypt without, scribe, without the scribal class. They had to organize. So the development of things like, you know, reading, writing, mathematics, it really supports or enables the real success of that. Nice. I mean, I love that. I think there was a period in Egyptian history, and obviously it's, it's massive, um, but there were three or four consecutive kings or pharaohs who were like the clerk and they ran out of people to promote. So these guys accidentally became <laughs> sort of the succession and they're all like, I just really want to, I want to, I want to crunch the numbers and go <laughs> on here. <laughs> Can I not do this? <laughs> I mean, we're, I think we're sort of leaning into it. What, what role does chronology play and how can we support pupils in developing their understanding of this concept? You know, if we, if we consider the fact that the Egyptian of empire possibly empires ran for you know certainly much longer than i have the ability to comprehend and you know what, what does that look like in in sort of history in general and now we're talking my language because i am a massive chronology nerd i it's one of those things where when i deliver a training session on chronology i have to start with teachers going please don't think this was a, a light bulb moment this is four years of development. And that's the thing. It doesn't matter what subject it is. It's a development cycle. So in terms of chronology, it's it's a really important on two fronts. Number one, it's a concept within its own right. It's the vehicle by which we mark those huge narrative arcs from you know, the earliest point of humanity is about two and a half million BC all the way through to 2022. That's beyond comprehension. And the way in which I supplement that is with mathematics because we use kind of certain mathematical principles and rules to underpin that. Whenever people hear me talk about timelines, I will always say very quickly, it needs a mathematical scale. Even if the children cannot comprehend numerical values, that mathematical scale opens up that narrative. Because if we don't do that, we go back to the, you know, that classroom timeline of, I've just printed some A4 sheets of paper with some numbers in the picture on. That doesn't do the complexity justice. So in terms of, I'll kind of split it into two. Um, so if we think of timelines as graphic organisers, um, I love the um, Ollie Cav and uh, David Goodwin's book on graphic organisers because unwittingly it totally agreed with what I was doing. I didn't realise the kind of underpinning academia, but actually it does. What we've got there is a way in which we can organise these complex narrative arcs. I choose to do it in as visually simplistic a way as possible because visual simplicity is our friend here that's already really complicated. So every time we construct a timeline, the first step is let's explore this mathematical scale. I loved when you're using the concept of a, an anchor point because in the early years they learn now and past. So it's happening or it already did. So with therefore we have to anchor it now because now is difficult because it's relative. So if you always start with now and look backwards, it's a far easier prospect to begin to understand that what it means but then we can take it a step further if we have a physical scale and the teacher places things accurately on that scale a child can very easily be supported to go that's further away absolutely that's further in the past it's not a huge step whereas if we limit it by putting numbers on 
in by the end of key stage one they know numbers to 100 200 so if it's beyond that numerically it's just a word to them they don't have that underpinning contextual knowledge so what i use is a couple of core principles number one i mentioned before is visual simplicity number two mathematical scale to enable everything else but number three graphs and bar models that's why you'll see timelines that i kind of uh, produce and share they have blocks on them because a block very easily shows this is when it started, this is how long it existed, this is when it ended. It's like, it's a, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but it's a statistical data set. That's kind of what we're using. We're using that numerical values in that graphic way. Once we've got that clear visual in mind, it becomes a much easier prospect to narrate it. So this is what you know. Oh, look, this is what we're learning now. It's right next to it. Oh, so that's the next piece of the story. Correct. Why do they overlap? Because both of these groups existed at the same time. Why have we got British and world history separate? Well, this is what was happening in Britain. Meanwhile, we've got the Egyptians at the same time as the Neolithic, as the late Neolithic into the Bronze Age. Favorite fact that, you know, we were talking about development over time. Did you know Stonehenge and the Great Pyramids of Giza were built roughly the same time? It doesn't take away how remarkable Stonehenge is. But I mean, let's be fair here. The Great Pyramids crap all over it. They absolutely crap all over it. So we can use that as a way to look and go, do you know what? Britain wasn't as developed as Egypt. That's the difference between prehistory and a civilization in terms of development. Here's a kind of living and breathing example. Once we've done that big picture, because we need, I always use two types of timeline. First, we set that wider world perspective, but then we zoom in onto one particular aspect. That allows us to tell narratives in more depth. So once again, it'll look like a bar model because it represents this is the period we're talking about. Starts here, ends here. Everything we learn about falls within it. When you're placing things on a timeline, you can't put everything on. You can't because it's impossible. So think carefully what you're putting on. My rule of thumb is if I'm teaching it in history or as a valid cross-curricular link, it goes on because then I'll make reference to it. It becomes that graphic organizer model again. Every time I teach it, they know contextually where it sits. And that lesson adds depth to that introduction. I personally choose to use simple sentences on my timelines because it gets the children reading, kind of rehearsing in their head. That's slightly problematic with younger children because if they're decoding, their word recognition isn't there yet, they won't be able to do that. So with younger children, pictorial timelines, totally with them. Last but not least, once they've constructed the timeline, please get them to read it. Because it's one of my favorite gotcha moments is this. I will say to teachers, right, we're going to construct the timeline. Now we're going to add our mathematical scale. Look how it changes the narrative. Be honest. Did you read the information or have you just looked at the numbers? These are highly qualified professionals. And a lot of the time they just look at the numbers because it's the efficiency of the human brain. That's all they needed to do to accomplish the task. So small steps, bringing a bit, a bit of rose and shine led approach, small steps. First, we construct, then we narrate it. We read through that. We get the children, we read it through. It might be choral reading. I might lead it. They might have a go. But what we do is when we read it, they circle or highlight the words they don't understand. The reason I get them to do that is a really simple time efficiency one is I can then tell them what it means in context immediately. I'm not doing dictionary tasks. Because them getting, um, I think the research supports this, them trying to find the right definition to match a word in a sentence is guesswork most of the, is quite a lot of the time. Whereas if I tell them it's efficient and we understand what it means. Last common mistake uh, for this little bit, um, 
you can't tidy them away afterwards and never look at them again. Otherwise, you've wasted your time. What we need to do is that underpins the teaching sequence. If you've got a history display board, a timeline at its heart is brilliant because it's an easy reference point. Every time you teach, where are we learning about? When you're doing retrieval practice, where did that sit on our timeline? It helps to plot that narrative. Think about English lessons. We use story maps a lot for narrative teaching because they're useful models. A timeline is a factual story map. And by correspondence, a story map is a fictional timeline. They do the same job. They are, have the same purpose. I mean, I don't know if I'm misinterpreting, but it feels like you're giving the cardinal value of the timeline as much importance as the ordinal value. You know, whereas, you know, quite standard, you will always have like a number line and you'll have a picture of Elizabeth, you'll have a picture of Francis Drake, you'll have a picture of Queen Victoria. And but by using those bar models, and I think this is something I've seen you do too, Chris, something similar, where you've got you've got the overlapping nature. You're almost acknowledging that this was an entity in itself and this has value. Um, I don't know. Am I over-interpreting or, or maybe misinterpreting? I don't know. I mean, just thinking about what you said there, Stuart, about the, the basic understanding behind chronology and timelines. It's amazing how much of it links to space. It's amazing how much of it links to spatial awareness. I mean, I know Kieran will know a lot more about this than I do, um, about the, the the development of... Oh, well, you shake your head, Kieran. I'm about to talk about that. <laughs> So, uh, but the, the importance of the development of spatial awareness to um, mathematical development in young children, but at its heart, we're, it's, it's basic mathematical awareness, as you say, that underpins this stuff, specifically the idea of, as you say, proportionality, the idea of, okay, if, if, if it's this far back, then this far back, you can kind of see what 10 times lo as long ago looks like. You know, it's, it's a visual understanding of a mathematical idea. But the other thing to note is that kind of connected to that automatically, you mentioned Ollie Cav, someone who he's a big fan of, or it seems to mention quite a lot, is uh, the work of uh, Lakoff and Johnson, so writers of um, metaphors we live by. And a big part of that is a lot of these are relating common ideas to direction. And I've, I've, it's been a while since I read any of Lakoff's work, but it would very much surprise me if one of these isn't the idea of, you know, time as as time as direction, time as movement. And that's a, effectively the, the, the key metaphor that underpins the idea of the timeline. It's just like, okay, imagine time, uh, um, a time as an arrow almost, as, a as, as something physically and visibly moving along a straight line. And yeah, it's amazing that this becomes this central visual metaphor for understanding chronology. It's really interesting when we start to think of it in kind of different disciplinary ideas. So we've got loads of mathematics there. I don't explain it in such eloquent ways. I tend to kind of simplify it quite a lot. And the reason I do it in that way is to try and convey the point that, yes, it is complicated, but the way in which we explain it doesn't need to be. So that's why we can get really young children to understand that the fact that time is kind of infinite by just the simple addition of an arrowhead and a very simple instruction of that arrowhead tells us that time keeps going. We've just run out of physical space. They don't need, and that's something that we can build on. And that's why bars are very helpful because they're definites. And I tend to construct timelines in the halls. We'll have multiple stations at once because when we get the children to start narrating and interacting with them, that's when the light bulb moments happen. It's not, it's, it's instruction led because I know it, they don't, but, they make discoveries post-instruction. 
because they can start to make uh, kind of their own inferences and their own thought processes once they have a knowledge base from which they can build. So with Key Stage 1 children, once we built this timeline, they will do the sequential they'll do the sequential work because that's what they're able to do. The teacher will then add that mathematical scale in and then we get them to, and this sounds like a gimmick, but it's literally what they're going to do. We get them to jump back in time. Why are we starting it now? Because that's where we are. How many jumps will it take you to get back to the first flight? Uh, five jumps. That child therefore has that kind of vision, that thought process in their head of that space is this many jumps. It, then we'll test out the hypothesis. It's a great opportunity to practice counting as well, just as you know, an underpinning thought. And then we go back to the start, and we'll place, and we'll look at another person. Let's say, uh, you know, Florence Nightingale. Florence Nightingale. Oh, that's ten jumps because they've got that visual in their head of it's further, it's about double. And then we test out, go. That's right. What does it mean that we had to jump further? So what? It's just that gist. It's that you know that introductory gist from which that that thought process can develop when we revisit it over time. Yeah, I mean, whenever I when I had that idea about ordinality, I thought this is the most profound thing I've thought on the podcast in a while. And then I could tell from your responses when I started speaking that it wasn't. And then Chris very skillfully moved me moved it into the next. So I can that was a perfect example of co-hosting, Chris. You know, you should be very proud. No, I'm I'm going to jump in there and say it was a terrible example of co-hosting because what happened there was you said something very interesting about ordinality and cardinality, and I already had this idea in my head of what I wanted to say, and so just like dived in. So I'm going to come back to your point. No, I think, I uh, I no, genuinely, I, I think, but, the, but that is that is the heart of it because you're talking about. I mean, obviously, the representation of a timeline is fundamentally getting them to understand an ordinal idea of number. It, it's completely embedded within it. Without, but I'd say the yeah, it's 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 more ordinal than cardinal because there's no. I guess the, the interesting thing is the way that um, Stuart tied that into the cardinal, because as, as soon as you're starting to say, oh, OK, this is, you know, 500 years ago and we've set up a timeline. So a leap is roughly a century. You're starting to think of that 500 years ago, that ordinal distance in terms of something that you can physically recognize and count. I um, So, yeah, I think it was actually much more profound than you give yourself credit for. We'll see. We'll see. Um, I mean, that, that probably sets us up for a, a future episode where we literally just look at the, the mathematics and history because it's, it's come up quite a bit in this in this chat already. We've, I think we could probably get time for one more question, um, and it's a good one. Um, I don't know if I know the answer to it. Is evidence really important in primary history? So I'm, I'm going back to E.H. Uh, e. Carr again because it was such a profound lecture series he wrote in the book, and it really is a great start point. Um, I just pulled out this uh, quote for this question. The historian without his facts is rootless and futile. The facts without their historian are dead and meaningless. And it's just, it's I, I look, you know, when you find a profound quote and you can't help but beam and go, I am using that in literally everything. It's happening, whether it's relevant or not. If if I was brave enough to have an extra a t visible tattoo, I reckon I'd get it in a you know a language so I could say yeah, it says it there. The thing about evidence is, evidence matters because it's what differentiates an opinion from a historical interpretation. Quite often, we see in the twenty first century world, people seem to think that evidence can be disputed because they have a different opinion. Do you know what disputes an opinion? More evidence. Do you know what disputes evidence? More evidence, better evidence. 
And this is what sets history as a kind of, you know, as an intellectual discipline. And that's why we have academic historians. So if we take it to primary history, why does it matter? Because it's a core feature of history teaching. It's a core aspect of what we are aiming to find out. And that's why when we look at it, we go, okay, we're going to lead using what we call historical inquiry questions. Now, key misconception that can arise that we just want to kind of nip in the bud straight away. When we say historical inquiry, we don't mean inquiry as in discovery, as in child-led. What we mean in historical inquiry is we are working in a similar way that a historian would. It's that process that we follow. And part of that is accruing the evidence in order to form an interpretation. In history, the historian doesn't go out looking for a specific document or a specific archaeological find that's going to prove what he wants it to say. Once the, it's that correlation, I like to call it triangulating. And you can, once again, this is key stage one upwards. In key stage one, if you're, you know, if you're teaching something, if you've got a piece of testimonial evidence, that's useful and it's helpful. But that's only useful and helpful if we ask very specific questions of it. What we need to be kind of mindful of when we think about um, evidence and concepts in history is we can't use kind of a generic approach to of how we think about them. We have to ask specific questions in order to obtain specific answers. So if we go back to when we think about the nature of primary history, focused historically valid inquiry questions are effective to lead history because they provide you with clarity. They provide every lesson with meaning because at the end of every kind of phase of an inquiry might spread over a couple of lessons. What we can do is we can go, what have we learned that will help in that final answer? So not only does it show why the evidence matters, because that evidence is going to support and form the basis of the answer, but it allows that in a teaching sense, it allows formative assessment. Have they taken in the evidence I wanted them to? Or have they been distracted by the fact Samuel Pepys buried a wheel of Parmesan that we casually mentioned? And that's why, if we go you know, back to the start, we need to think about being deliberate. Tangent, tangential knowledge is okay, but we know what children are like. We know that's what they're going to remember. We know that's probably going to be the expense of what we want them to remember. So think about it. Right, so what we'll do is we'll look and we'll go, this is the evidence we've got in front of us. Here is the question we're going to be using. It only becomes evidence once we ask a question of it and it proves useful with regards to that question. It's a historical source, but becomes evidence when we ask that question. If we don't, if we don't take that suitable evidence, if it doesn't matter, it's still a historical source, but it's not evidence for our particular purposes. And that's why genericism is kind of risky, because quite often we can have that. Um, and uh, Chris, if you want to give your example of this in a second that you mentioned before, it's a perfect one. That's why I remember my early teaching days, even though I had brilliant instruction when I was at university on it, you'd have those open-ended lessons. You'd spend 30, you know, 30 minutes looking really deep at an archaeological source. And then what have they taken from it? Oh, it's in no way, shape or form what we wanted it to. You, which one did you mention before, Chris? It was a... Uh, the the I think it's called the the standard of Ur. It's from ancient Sumer and it has it's I believe it's currently unsurprisingly uh, in the British Museum. Um, both on one side of it it shows I think warfare on one side it shows peacetime. I, I might be wrong about that. I know that each side represents shows a different kind of aspect 
of uh, the life of um, those of the city. So um, yeah, that it's it's that, and I've worked with pupils with that, or I've seen lessons taught with that, where pupils have basically spent a long period of time coming up with their own interpretations of that, which guided and done in a, a clever way can be really valuable, but often um, not so much when it's done with this because kids are saying, oh, well, it looks like they're on their way to a football match or whatever it might be. You think, yeah, actually, they, it was time to step in a little before that. There's There's a balance to be drawn between encouraging pupils to begin to think about um artifacts and how they relate to past events and past civilizations and there's a time for yeah a little bit more direction and making sure that those interpretations don't go miles off the rails. absolutely i think it's that that's that teacher's toolkit once again um i think it's william's book um when he talks about once you you know learning more is possible especially if you know more going in so instruction and context followed by an approach like that would be more successful. But but yeah, it, it's that it's that sense of kind of you know being really careful and set and kind of guiding them as opposed to emphasizing one that I had a conversation with Neil. Gosh, it's probably a couple of years ago now. Um, we were talking. He we was talking about different types of source material, and you get the classic, the really volatile testimonial sources. Um, the uh, Arab writer I mentioned when he met a Viking, obviously we put the word coitus in it behind an ellipsis and we never mention it again. But when we think about Tacitus' account of Boudicca's revolt, he wrote an account of her final battle cries before they launched into battle. If you don't contextualise that, the Britons look like idiots because they've let a Roman listen to their battle plans, which not only would be insanity, but it's not true because he wrote it after the battle had happened. I think it's about 20 years later. So it's about contextualizing. And this is where we get one of those real difficulties of evidence in primary history. Yes, it's really important, but it doesn't stand on its own merit unless we place it into position. We have to place it within that world, within that world that it was occupying. We have to give them that context because one of my favorite ones to do with children um, is the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. When we're looking at the Viking raid on Lindisfarne, it's brilliant, it's fabulous. In the past, I've gone wrong because I've got them to try and read parts of it. We've helped, we've scaffolded, but it, it's it's not modern English. Therefore, it takes ages to decode and all the impetus is lost. So now it's more of a performance piece where we read it to them dramatically to set that, you know, that kind of metaphorical, that figurative layer. And we point out that it's a figurative layer because when you're reading testimonial source material, uh, testimonial sources, you absolutely have to use reading skills and reading knowledge-based because that's what you're doing it's a form of reading comprehension it's different it's through the historical discipline but the crossover is massive because if the children come away read that without knowing it was written by devoutly christian saxon monks under the instruction of a devoutly christian saxon king who was currently at war with those the same group the descendants of the people that raided lindisfarne it's no wonder the vikings get a bad press if they don't know that in advance, they can come away thinking, well, they must have been that way because it was written down. We that's So we do need to contextualise it. I think that ties in really nicely with something you said earlier when you were talking about um, the lives of regular people and how often the evidence isn't there in the same way um, for fairly obvious reasons or the, source, the sources aren't there to provide as much information. 
And I think one of the really interesting thing about the discussion of um, evidence, historical sources with pupils is this discussion of firstly, you know, bias, as you've been talking there, or the potential for bias, but also this idea of like the limitations of it, how much we do and don't know from this. So like my, um, a member of my family, a chap called uh, Ian Hughes is a historian and expert, but very specifically in the, the end of the Roman empire. And a big part of being a historian of the Roman Empire is dealing with considerably less um, source material than uh, than those who are studying further back. And one of the reasons why, as far as I can tell from his book reviews on Amazon, one of the reasons why he's lauded is because of how clear and honest he is about the limitations of the source material and the extent to which he's willing to construct a narrative while saying this is something that this seems like a sensible interpretation, but this is as far as we can go. There are limits to what we can possibly know, as there always are, but there are quite, you know, strict limits on what we can really interpret here. And I think that discussion with kids, this idea of, well, if we're looking at, say, the standard of Ur and saying, OK, what can this tell us about Sumer? But let's be honest, how much can we really tell from this? That's a really valuable discussion as well when we're talking about what it means to interpret historical sources it's 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 a really fascinating kind of um area to consider because it's we tend to call it tentative language to what extent do we have an evidence base to to correlate and corroborate with the interpretation we believe is the case and in a history sense very rarely does anybody say anything with huge certainty and this is where for upper key stage two teachers, once they've been taught modal verbs, it is the perfect vehicle by which we can use them across the curriculum. Because in history, we are talking nothing but that extent of certainty. So when we think about, you know, those examples, that's why we can't take them in isolation. That's why we use kind of constructing an interpretation. Because if we don't construct an interpretation, that's where we get huge, wide-reaching tangents and misconceptions to arise. Where should teachers look for their evidence? Because obviously, speaking to you guys, you guys have done the legwork. You've read an absolute ton about history over an extended period of time. If you, you know, I'm, I'm again thinking about the person who's new to the game, or is it coming in with the, perhaps they studied in a different country and are, and are getting up to speed on the tutors? Um, for instance, where, where would you go for your sources? Would it be the History Historical Association? So it obviously depends what you're looking for, because there are lots of different uh, uh, places to find. In terms of um, kind of planning materials, the Historical Association are, are really good for that. They have, as part of any membership, um, they do include all the uh, uh, schemes of work. The thing to remember is they're not pick up and play. But I don't believe any scheme that you buy in should be pick up and play, because as a person who writes units of work uh, for various things, I've never met your children. I don't know them. I don't know the area. We've got to tweak whatever we get. In terms of what else it offers, the primary history magazine or journal, it's got one title or the other, um, is fascinating for primary history pedagogy. I have taken so many interesting ideas and developed them in different ways that come from there because you get a real range of voices from there's an ever growing list of primary teachers who contribute subject leads assistant head heritage professionals all of and uh, university academic all of whom contribute which is why it's subject associations are wonderful 
in terms of source material itself, just to kind of really veer in on the question, there are several places I go to, I look for. If you are look at wanting kind of testimonial evidence, there are two places. For more ancient history, so we're talking Anglo-Saxons, Vikings, it's the British Library. The British Library has an astonishing collection and you can access really interesting extracts on their website. If you're going to use that documentary evidence, don't just give them a typed extract though. Show them the original document because it helps contextualize the artisan nature of what they're reading. Because it's not just typed on a screen. This is, it's crafted. Then if you're looking for more modern source material, the National Archives. The National Archives are sensational. I don't know how many people know they have an education service but they do. All of their education packs are freely available on TAS. You'd have to pay at all. They do free um, outreach sessions. So if you're in London, you can go to the archives themselves. If not, they were doing Zoom CPD before it was cool. And I've never heard anything other than it's remarkable. Beyond that, contact local museums and archives because your local museum service will have things you couldn't even imagine. They might not have them on show, but they might be able to access them. One of my favourite things I ever did was um, in Leeds, we've got a place called the Discovery Centre. And the Discovery Centre holds Leeds Galleries and Museums collection that's not on display. And uh, I know the head of uh, education, there, she called Kate, and she showed me around and said, here, hold this. And then she looked at me very serious and said, that's older than the earth. So it's that level of thing that you can get to. But quite often museums don't know unless you ask. So it's your job to ask. And last but not least is a wonderful website called My Learning. Now, My Learning started in Yorkshire and it's where the museums, archives, galleries are placing their collections so they can be freely accessed online. And it gives you the kind of context of that particular piece. If you've never looked at My Learning, I would heartily recommend it. It is wonderful. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that my, the scope of my question was probably bigger than the, the time available. I think there's... there's um. There's a history unit waiting to be written about Maidstone, because I think Maidstone has been here for thousands and thousands of years, and there's been a settlement here. But um, I keep trying to convince Lloyd that this is, you know, the direction he needs to go. He needs to make the, the perfect. And Maidstone Museum is at once the most confusing and the most interesting place on Earth, because you will have Japan in one room, the dinosaurs in the next, you will have mum mummies in, in another room. And this is just like a small, high-size museum. But... There's, you know, they they also you can tell that they know the local area better than anyone you know anyone else does. Um, you know, so I don't mean to be rude because the kids go there almost every week and their grandmother works there um, on a kind of voluntary basis. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a unique place. But uh, I I think Maidstone, I'd love to get to the bottom of it. And you know, and if you're talking about you know the use of sources, I'm 100%. Go and check out your your local museum. Yeah, it's local museums are wonderful, but as teachers, we quite like people doing things for us if we can, because a teacher's workload is an astonishing thing. But if you're going to get the most out of a museum or a local, especially local history uh, unit, contact them well in advance, give them a clear impression of what you want and what you're doing, because quite often they're looking at, oh, yeah, we should be offering that, shouldn't we? And it, it has positives for both sides, but it's it does require a, a bit of effort. And I love I love a quirky museum. I absolutely love a quirky museum. One when you can go from the dinosaurs through Leeds, uh, Leeds City Museum is brilliant. 
but it's a little bit annoying because it's really well organised. What's the, what's the museum on the dark side near Canary Wharf? Oh, it, it's maybe it's the Darkland uh, Light Museum or whatever. But basically, they've got four floors, and on, on almost every floor, there's a different fire from a point in history. And I'm all, maybe this wasn't the best place to transfer goods from because you, <laughs> you just spent your time putting out fires and relocating people. <laughs> you could do it as a causal study. <laughs> Did we learn the lessons of the first fire? No. <laughs> now let's, did we learn the lesson of the second fire? No. <laughs> Chris, anything you want to add? Did you have a follow-up question or anything? No, I, I mean, the, the thing I wanted to just kind of accentuate was the fact that, you know, when I was putting together history bits and pieces, the um, historical association, as you say, it, just such an incredibly valuable resource for that stuff. And I agree, in particular, the primary magazines reading um, the perspectives of given teachers. I remember in particular, there was one teacher that talked about portraiture or the types of portraiture, um, the representation of people in like Tudor times and or English Tudor times and, um, and I think it was the uh, Benin Empire and the comparison between the two, and it was just, yeah, just really fascinating stuff. So yeah, highly recommend the same thing. Equally, quite a lot of not just your local museum, but national museums quite often reach out, you can reach out to those or equally just look on the website, the website, there's loads of bits and pieces that you think are likely to tie into your curriculum, particularly the larger museums like the British Museum. Um, a lot of their website material um, will tie into ancient civilizations really well. Time has absolutely flown during this chat, you know, um, and I, hand on heart, will be joining the next Zoom session you're doing because I absolutely love listening to what you've had to say, Stuart, about this year. It's been, it's been fascinating from start to finish. So, you know, really appreciate you being here. And hopefully you'll come and join us for chats with them. You know, I don't know, with, with just random times, lot with maybe different compositions of groups. I don't know. No, that, sound, that sounds fascinating. One of the things that I kind of uh, have realised the more long-form podcasts I've listened to is the best part about them is the detailed, nuanced conversations. And it's um, when you hear people having a conversation instead of just, here is my argument that I'm setting out in 250 characters. It, as with everything, the, the nuance is so key and kind of, you know, just give yourself permission to spend an hour just listening to the conversation and imagine if you were there what you'd say to it and that's why kind of having these has been I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and yes I'd love to uh, join you again fantastic all that's left to do is say thank you very much Normally, thank you very much Stuart an absolute pleasure thanks for having me thank you Chris loved it thanks again Kieran and everyone at home until next time thanks for listening <laughs>